don't know this, then you're behind the times. The only metric that matters is convenience. Rules apply to you. Suddenly you're an advertiser. This week on Social Minds. Guns aren't the problem. They're not the things that kill people. What we need is bullet control. We sat down with Adrian Ma, an award-winning PR specialist who's worked with brands the likes of Tesco and Harvey Nichols, as well as influencers like Joe Sugg, and who's now managing director of Fan Club PR, a London-based firm. Yes, we discussed a broad range of topics, including why smashing up a department store is one of the quickest ways to bake shareability into your campaigns, do bullet control sanctions and the act of heavily taxing bullets, not guns, hold the answer to advertising fatigue and do newspapers really want the truth or are we talking about something else? We've moved to a new phase in terms of delay and that's what all that anyone's talking about but actually there's a load of stuff that other people are talking about as well and the news agenda needs to be balanced with light news. All this and more coming up. How can great PR guarantee shareability for social campaigns? Big question. Very big question. Um, Well, the first thing to say is that it can't guarantee it, but it can definitely help massively. I think the thing to consider when you're thinking about PR and social content is that there's two elements to a shareable story. The first element is the idea itself, you know, coming up with a great idea that you think it's going to be shared. But the second element, which quite often gets overlooked, are the networks. So good ideas don't catch fire by themselves. You need to understand how they're going to get shared so in PR we've got the toolkit to be able to do that so you've got the great idea you think yes this is a good one the next thing you need to do is you need to research who the key opinion formers are and who's likely to share it then you need to build up your relationships with them and understand what's the value exchange for them sharing the story and how to pitch the story to them Mm. as well so a good example of this is some of our work with Harvey Nichols. So we worked with Harvey Nichols and an ad agency called TBWA London. They have an absolutely brilliant, brilliant creative team and came up with an amazing idea that literally gave me boost gums when they told me about it. (laughs) So the brief on the client was, okay, we are four floors of women's wear, yet when you think of women's wear in London department stores, you think of Selfridges or you think of Liberty. Mm. So how can you make us the most talked about department store for women's wear during London Fashion Week? And the guys at TBWA came up with this incredible story. They delved into the deep, into the archives, and they saw that actually it's a hundred years ago in London where women got the right to vote. Sadiq Khan turned around to all department stores and he said, I want you all to create a window display which celebrates the fact that London was a place where women got the right to vote for London Fashion Week. And then um, looking through the historical archives of Harvey Nichols, they saw that when Emmeline Pankhurst said, use these not words, eight of the windows that were smashed after she said that were Harvey Nichols windows. Mm -hmm. So the idea was, rather than creating a window display, let's smash out the windows again. (laughs) And then we, we came up and said, oh, it's okay, this is good. I think there's a real opportunity for this to go even further. What we wanted to do is use our network works to invite high-profile people to come and smash the windows and people who are still fighting the good fight. Yeah. So we had, for example, Anita Rani, who is a TV presenter for the one show in the Country File, yeah. and she came down as one of the people who would come and smash the windows. We also had Dr. Helen Pankhurst, the great-granddaughter of Emmeline Pankhurst, come down and smash the windows. And we had footballers, racing drivers, writers, entrepreneurs. They all came down and we created a bit of a media event where we all came down with these crowbars, smashed out the windows, absolutely brilliant. 
one show we were there recording the whole thing. We created some beautiful social content out of it. Yeah. And the reason to share the content was baked into the content. Yeah. So when it came to putting the content out on social channels, we had all these influencers sharing the content. We had this one piece on the one show, a whole feature about it. We had 75 pieces on um, of media coverage about it as well, including places like the Mail Online and Vogue and Marie Claire. Articles about the campaign were shared over 3,000 times and we had 150 social media posts about the campaign itself from everyone from TV personalities through to fashion editors as well. So I'm keen to know, sorry Adrian, just to stop you there, I'm keen to know then, you know, you've got all that social content, how you kind of measure, you know, as a, I guess Mm. as a PR company, how you kind of, which bits you attribute to yourself almost, how you kind of measure that success and, you know, what sort of did you do, what did the advertising company do in a way? So that's a really, really great question. I think what works in our favour in terms of measurement on this campaign is that it was pure organic. Mm. There was no paid spend behind any of the content at all. So everything that got shared um, and everything that was posted and the reach and the engagement of it was purely through PR. Yeah. Now, the brief from the client was make customers talked about department store during London Fashion Week. So we were able to do some share of voice analysis and look at, you know, who which department stores were talked about during London Fashion Week, which department stores had the greatest share of voice. Harvey Nichols dominated that London Fashion Week by a significant margin, owning 71% of the media conversation versus the other department stores, which was over double yeah, the, next, uh, the next leading department store there. So that's how we were able to attribute the PR success. That also that. Bucks, bucks the trend in something, you know, when we spoke in the initial phone call that we had, that, that kind of bucks the trend of this idea that organic is dead, yeah. you know, paid is the only mm. kind of way of getting your message out there. And I know you've got some thoughts on that. Oh, yeah. Well, definitely. I think the people that advocate that point of view are looking at social from a very narrow perspective and probably come from more of a traditional advertising background, may not even be digital, where they're thinking about, okay, they buy a space, they can put whatever they like into that space, and they're pushing their message down a one-way street. Whereas we come from a PR background, we're all about how do we create conversations and engagement around a story. And so for us, a story isn't even successful unless it can be shared organically. Yeah, I think you're you're very right because people sort of picture it, like you said, as a media buy and it doesn't matter then what they put there because the money is going to be what pushes it. Um, But I'll go back to something you just touched on, saying that idea for Harvey Nichols, it had social baked in to the idea and I'm sure that helps a lot with getting things picked up. Absolutely. I mean, I think basically with the Harvey Nichols idea, it was a social first campaign. Yeah. And actually the media relations part of it, the traditional PR part of it was was actually there as fuel for the social fire, if yeah. you like. So it's all about sparking those conversations and reaching those influential people. Yeah. Because, because so much of that conversation now happens on social, mm. are you finding that the majority of your briefs now have to be these social first campaigns? Well, yes and no, actually. It depends. So when we have a look, so an example of this is um, we were looking at one of our clients historically over the last 12 months and looked at what is shaping their reputation in the media. Mm. And what is shaping their conversation in social media? When I refer to media there, I'm talking about traditional media, which yeah. includes print, online, TV and radio. Now, what's interesting, and this is quite typical for any company or organisation, is that 
the way that the media, traditional media, reports on a company is more about what it does as a corporation, whereas when you look at um, an organization's social media footprint, it's a lot more mixed. It might be about what the organization does as a corporation, but it might also be look at more, say, at products or services mm-hmm. that it offers. Yeah. And, and that's where the difference really is, and that's where we're finding a bit of a difference and shift in understanding from our clients that... Okay, if we if we want to talk about product or service benefits, that's where social is going to become a really really useful tool for us and channel yeah. for us. Whereas actually, if we want to be driving the reputation through traditional media, we probably need to be thinking about purpose yeah. and what we're doing as an organisation yeah. to... Because editors don't want to pick up things about your product unless it's trade, right? So, I mean, on that, what would make an editor say yes or no to a, a campaign? So I think there's a few things. So the way that we look at this in the PR world is um, we look at this through a model of Truth. Believe it or not, journalists are looking for truth, but actually truth is an acronym <laughs> for T-R-U-T-H. So T is timeliness. So if we think about that in the Harvey Nichols example, that is 100 years since women received the right to vote. R is about relevancy. And again, using the Harvey Nichols example, relevancy there is that actually there's a lot of conversation at the moment around gender equality. Mm. U is about uniqueness. Uniqueness in Harvey Nichols is smashing up some windows. T is about trouble and conflict. And so in the Harvey Nichols story there, you have this lovely story of um, the conflict between the establishment and those fighting for change. And then the H is all about humanity. How do you bring it to life through people? And in the Harvey Nichols story, you've got people, you've got Dr. Helen Pankhurst, mm. you've got Anita, you've got Emmeline Pankhurst as well. Yeah. So those are the things that an editor is going to be looking at. And when you're approaching them, you've got to be thinking about what value does my story offer for the audiences of this editor? Yeah, no, definitely. It's a really good framework to go in. And I think a lot of the points that you've just made could well be applied to social content because it just does mm. come back to, you know, what people are looking for and what will strike a chord with people like emotionally and make them want to share things. Absolutely, 100%. And actually, we are working on something at the moment. <clears throat> A piece of research where that's the hypothesis. Mm. Are there parallels between what an editor's looking for and does that apply to social as well? And actually, yeah. so when you think about the algorithms in social, that's really important because 51% of people discover their news now through social media feeds. Yeah. And the algorithms that are built to pick up and put news stories onto a newsfeed of a social media network are pretty much based on how an editor makes a decision. Yeah. They basically look at two things, relevancy and engagement. And so, yeah, absolutely, you can completely transfer that framework for social content as well. Yeah, definitely. On, on the point about the uh, humanity, Adrian, and yeah. you mentioned the Harvey Nichols example, and it sounds like, you know, a lot of famous people, a lot of celebrities in there. I guess what I'm trying to ask is when it comes to organic, is it the case that, you know, things are still more likely to fly if they've got an influence in and if they've got a celebrity then if they haven't that's that's a really great question and you know traditionally in pr if we didn't have a great thing to talk about we would just hire a celebrity mm. to talk about <laughs> it and it's a bit weird though because we, we we play a bit of a bargaining game with the media so when we're speaking to editors and say oh we've got this celebrity to talk about this product or service and they'll say okay let's do an interview but the media are much more interested in their personal life mm. than they are about the product or service they're plugging mm. So we kind of have to say, okay, look, we'll give you the interview with this celebrity as long as we can get a product mention in there and as well. But there is a lot of other things that PR uses to drive interest 
origin story. So it could be a product story, it could be an innovation, it could be some cold hard research, or it could be a stunt as well. Yeah. So a couple of examples here. So one that backs up my initial point is we were working with Mark Wright from The Only Way is Essex, and he was working with us on a campaign for Tesco Mobile where we were promoting free calls from Europe, you know, home from home. So, so we sent him out to Croatia and we did a shoot with him to create a 360 video white water rafting postcard uh, where he was sending back to the UK. And um, we were thinking about, okay, how do we get this shared on uh, in the media? And, uh, you know, he's a good looking chap. I don't know if you've seen pictures of him, but he's a really <laughs> lovely guy. And he's also cut nicely yeah. as well. So we had uh, him take his shirt off and we had some photographs of him topless on the uh, white water raft uh, yeah. there, which we used to pitch to the media. Yeah. And they loved it. You know, the Classic media. in the Daily Mail. Yeah, that was it. Classic. It was in the Daily Mail. It was in the <laughs> heat, torso of the week. And that's what they wanted out of it. Yeah. They weren't interested in, you know, we got we got the credit for our client in there, but they weren't really interested in, in free calls from overseas. They just wanted a picture of Mark Wright with his top off. Yeah. 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 And like another example is um, our work with Joe Sugg, YouTube superstar Joe yeah. Sugg. We hired him to create the world's largest emoji in crop circle form, just in, in <laughs> Bath, right? This is part of a brand campaign, again, for Tesco Mobile. And we had him creating this giant emoji as a crop circle. He's starring in a piece of content. And, we, you know, that worked really, really well on social when he shared it. Yeah. But when we pitched it to the media, the media weren't really interested in Joe Sugg. They just wanted the picture or the video of the crop circle itself. So when TV news covered it, they were more interested in the content we were giving them of a visual yeah, of a stunt than the celebrity. So different celebrities have different credibility in different places. Yeah, well, well, I was going to say, is it the case that maybe the mainstream media have influences, though we think so in social, have they not yet reached that kind of peak of celebrity, would you say, in, in terms of how they approach it? Or I think, it, I think it's a different kind of celebrity. So I think when we're considering use of influencers in campaigns, we are using celebrity, I'm sorry, influencers more for their social reach mm. than mm. their media reach. And quite often, there will be a blend of a traditional celebrity who would be used to drive traditional media mm -hmm. yeah. and mm -hmm. influencers to be used to drive that message through social channels or yeah. each social audiences as well. Yeah, it's what makes sense to like use them where they have the most influence, right, where, where they live. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, TV does this a lot. You know, when you're thinking about how shows like Strictly are casting their performers and dancers, yeah. you can see that actually bringing social media influences into that mix means yeah. that they can reach a wider audience mm. yeah. through social channels yeah, as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I've seen late night shows start to do that as well. I've been yeah. speaking to YouTubers and I've noticed that YouTubers like go onto it even though you think they'd be satisfied with their like, they've got millions of reach online, but they go on because it is that credibility for them as well. Yeah. And then you've got like movie stars like Will Smith doing YouTube. So it's like, it's merging. Well, I was, I was speaking to a friend of mine who who is a TV presenter and she was also, we were talking about the careers of these influencers and actually if you look at the data you can see that actually they go, they rise very very quickly but they can also fade very quickly yeah, as well. So there's often quite um, quite a need for these people to think about where they can transfer their skills to TV which could be a platform with greater longevity. Yeah. So an example of this is one of the CBBS presenters who presents Do You Know? I can't remember her name for the life of me now. No, it's all right. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but she's made the transition from YouTuber to TV mm. presenter 
is doing very, very well. Yeah, a lot of them are now um, authors. Yeah. So like, things like oh they're just they're spreading it out because it is for longevity's sake. Yeah. And actually, it makes them a lot of money. So Mrs. Hinch, for example, you yeah. know, her book is outselling a lot of traditional authors out mm-hmm. there. Because they already have those fans who they announce a book and they bring it to the number one of the bestsellers list within weeks because they have like an army at their backs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Jay Wicks was out selling Jamie Oliver in cookbooks. Mad, bonkers. Celebrity and and those big influencers obviously concerned with big budgets. What are the ways that you generate press when you know it's a low budget, is purely organic, and the client hasn't given you hardly anything to kind of work with, as is the case for a lot of people now. So I think what can be really good there is working really. Really, really smartly and, and a lot of it is about understanding culture and creating cultural relevancy so the Beano the comic book the Beano they saw an unlikely an uncanny likeness between Walter the Softy and Jacob Mogris and they sent <laughs> so they sent Jacob Mogris a cease and desist letter to stop using oh Walter's likeness which was a public letter as well and it went everywhere it went to the BBC everyone was writing about it really really clever and it was the cost of a letter Netflix did the same thing as well so Netflix they spotted that someone had created a Stranger Things pop-up and again so they sent a cease and desist letter from their lawyers but it was written in really really funny language where they were threatening to release a demogorgon on them if they didn't stop doing it after a certain amount of time which is really really cool and you saw it with um, Sainsbury's and Beyonce recently when Beyonce posted a picture of her in a tracksuit which had an uncanny likeness to the Sainsbury's uniform and they trolled her as well so you can see it's not necessarily about the budget it's actually just about understanding culture and reacting quite quickly to that as well and I think that's where people like you guys can do really, really, really great work as well. Yeah, I was yeah reactive say, stuff's often the best. Yeah, because I want to add to that. Like, so where I'm quite interested to know where PR now falls in to the kind of social media marketing mix, I, I suppose you can say, because you're, you're right, if you have got people like us yeah. who can sort of generate press and be notorious about tapping into culture, where does PR sit within that kind of world? For, you know, for people like us, for traditional agencies? Mm. It's, it's something that the whole of the whole agency mix is grappling with at the moment. But I'll, t- I'll tell you where PR can add the most value. And completely, honestly, you know, when we're thinking about social media, it's a channel, it's not a service. And like any other channel, like media, traditional media, there's paid, owned and earned. PR traditionally has operated in the earned space. And actually, that's where it has the most value, yeah. you know. And actually, PR is a discipline has had to really try and upskill to get there. And, I, and I, again, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not doing it very, very well. You know, there are a few things that PR lacks that it needs to upskill on. One is use of data for planning. Yeah. Secondly, visual creative. I mean, PR traditionally been very good at copy creative, mm. yeah. but not so good in visual creative. And on the third thing, digital measurement as well. And again, PR hasn't been very, very good at that. Mm. But if, if PR can crack those things and do that well, then it can add much more value to the earned space. I think PR has has struggled traditionally to look after the own space and the bought space as well. And I think there are probably organisations that are better placed to look after those different areas of social media. And actually, there's an argument to say that owned should be managed in-house as well. But on on the subject of social media as well, Mm. we always talk, when we talk about PR, about the little black book Mm -hmm. and the all-powerful little black book that's got everybody from Paul Dacre to whoever in it. Has, Has social media, would you say, kind of ripped that up a bit and ripped up that need? for that kind of I've got the editor on this direct number if you know what I mean there's actually a couple of things that ripped up a little black book 
first of all, is that the Little Black Book is available to buy for anyone who's got the money. Yeah. So for a few thousand pounds, you like all PR agents, you subscribe to a media database and you can put any person's name in there and, and get their telephone number and their, and their email address and pitch a story to them. However, such a black book doesn't exist for social or no directory for social. And actually relationships count for a lot. If you have a relationship, yeah. you're more likely to have a story shared, whether it be in the media and in social media. So there's a lot of work to be done in fostering those relationships and, you know, helping journalists out and helping influencers out, even when it's not related to your client or you have no personal interest in helping them out. And that's a way to create value for that person yeah. and get onto their radar for the future. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree because it does feel like yeah. there's there's so like many similarities between like PR now, like modern PR and social in terms of the kind of stuff we put out and the things that we have to achieve. That I I wonder like would it be the ideal combination? So like you'd have like a social agency looking after your data and everything, and the PR side is the ones nurturing those relationships and pushing stunts and what have you. And Eva, you're making an offer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, come work with us. We'll, 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 we can make some fun stuff. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I agree. I think that there is uh, an opportunity definitely to bring those two things together. But I also think that when I've spoken to agencies that have done that on the client side, they still think, oh, this my PR sits with this agency, yeah. my social and digital sits with this agency, yeah. my SEO sits with this agency. So they find it quite difficult to do the cross-sell. But I think the, the big opportunity is just for more collaboration, you know, for everyone just to work better and stop thinking so competitively yeah. and just invest in the idea and make it work, you know. It must be yeah. counterintuitive because that you're, you're so right, it's still so siloed, isn't it? Yeah. It's still like, well, you know, have you ran this past our ad agency? Have you spoken <laughs> to our PR agency about this? It's it's kind of, you're right. Does that hold things back a bit, that competitive nature? Because it does. It must add an extra layer of process as well. It and does. Like slow things down. It does. It, it definitely, it definitely holds back the potential of ideas. But I think that there are different mindsets from different agencies that are better at collaborating on things than mm. others. But you do find when working with certain agencies that suddenly the walls go up and mm. they're like, actually, no, we need to keep this within our big group. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and actually maybe you should be speaking to those guys who are also part of our group and not the independent agency there. Yeah. You know, it, it just doesn't feel that method of working. And maybe, you know, the big network agencies and stuff have seen that that, that method of working isn't sustainable to social because it is so fast and it is so immediate it's almost like you know liken it to programmatic at any one time yeah. things are just going on you know yeah. we're not no longer working in the yeah. six months in advance now, but are we? It, at the same time though, i wouldn't say i'd say that it's not true of all networked agencies mm. you know there are some network agencies that are absolutely brilliant at collaborating we want to talk about the juicy one mm. when <laughs> campaigns go bad oh. and the role of pr to dun, navigate dun, dun. they would say it's a shitstorm because they're you you would have you guys would have seen them there've been so many campaigns where people have kind of put the mechanic on Twitter for instance in yep. the audience's mm -hmm. hand where you can personalise things gotcha. and to say that Boaty McBoatface would probably be the kind of yeah. you know tame oh. version of the things that go on or even so. when a campaign goes really bad and obviously press wants to cover that because it's an interesting story oh. do you ever have to say hey please don't do that yeah oh absolutely absolutely but I, I think so brands just have to own it though and there's a level of transparency nowadays that means you can't hide it and also mm. 
it's quite good that things are being called out, you know, because really brands should be trying to create work, whether it be products or services or their marketing that serves everyone's needs, not just the shareholders' needs. I think, did you guys see the GBK curry burger story? No, I don't so, think I did. So this, I think this is maybe about 18 months ago. So Gourmet Burger Kitchen, they launched a curry burger and they thought as a good idea, or the agency thought as a good idea, to uh, to launch it, what they'd do is they'd get this white guy wearing a sandwich board saying GBK Curry Burger, sending down Brick Lane in London, which has a very, you know, which is where all the Bangladeshi restaurants are. Yeah. And he stood outside these little independent restaurants shouting customers saying, all right, mate, you don't want to go in there, you want to come and have an authentic curry, come to GBK. Oh my God. And you know, they filmed it, put the, put the video content out there. And, I mean, they got torn apart. You can imagine, you know, everyone's like, this is absolutely racist, this is terrible, who signed this off? It's a really, really bad idea. And then GBK came out with a groveling apology, but I I feel like they could have done a lot more, and I think actually the reputation suffered a lot more as a result. So an example of a brand which has done it quite well and owned the mistake is Starbucks. So Starbucks last year um, in Philadelphia, there were two black men, and they were sitting at a table in... In, in Starbucks and um, the manager came up to him and said are you going to order a coffee or not and he said yeah yeah we're going to order a coffee we're just waiting for a friend to arrive and it started an altercation the, the manager went and called the police and took them away in handcuffs just oh as their God. friend arrived so there's this big movement saying okay Starbucks is racist don't go to Starbucks you know this is terrible they're discriminating and against black people Starbucks decided okay this is really really bad it's damaged our reputation we need to really own this what can we do they shut all 8,000 shops for one day and did racial bias training across the whole estate. Mm. And and then and really... and then That's tangible. Like, yeah. that's off to them. That's that's training. Exactly. That's proper. And you know yeah. how much that would cost them? Yeah. Not just the cost of a training, but the cost of trade as well from losing all their trade for a day. And I think, you know, like you said, hats off to them. They yeah. owned it. And the more you own it, the better. Like... VW, for example, in the PR world, we always say that um, brand reputation is its greatest insurance against disruption. VW, back in 2015, faced the emissions scandal, Mm. you know, and they had to recall all of their cars after testing and get them fitted, retrofitted. Um, Their share price went down something like $27 billion as a result, but they owned it. They took some real proper action and as a result of rebuilding their processes and trust back in people just two years later while the rest of the car industry was facing decline or flat growth they were up year on year by 15 percent and so and they've got a great reputation and they're able to do that not all brands can do that Mm. you've got to have great credibility in the bank in order to recover from something like that yeah what about the 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 old saying that no press is uh, i can't remember it now all press is good press i was trying to say (laughs) i was trying to say no news is good news but that's (laughs) completely the wrong business yeah all all press is good press Uh, well yeah again i I would say that's not necessarily true if you look at a brand we were talking about earlier in our pre-chat peloton you know Mm. they put out an ad which really reinforced gender stereotypes and as a result of that their their stock price took a massive tumble i can't remember the actual numbers but it was millions of dollars yeah um i remember people booting off on social about that for quite a while yeah exactly but did you see what ryan reynolds did yes oh my god is aviation gin so that's an example of uh, a quick reaction yeah his advertising stuff is great recently he should have been in ad bad his whole life he's crushing it isn't he i mean i'm scared for the rest of the industry if brains like that (laughs) 
I can't I don't remember it. seeing this campaign. So you've got to explain it to me so, now. So the Peloton campaign was this woman who was given a bike by her fiancé or husband, and she works out on it and says thank you. And as, as a thank you, a gift back to her husband, she recalls a video of her using it every day and through the seasons. Mm. It's, it's mm. awful. It's terrible. Reinforces this idea that this woman's trying to keep herself thin and fit mm. for her husband, mm. for example. Mm. So that story went out. Everyone was criticising it. Peloton's share price takes a plunge. It's poor woman getting trolled and attacked on social media. Yeah, I know the actors. Yeah. Ryan Reynolds hires her for Aviation Gin and creates a campaign where they're sat at the bar and the camera is, is zooming on her face and she's just there and she's with two friends at the bar and, and the friends turn around at her and say, tough week, huh? And she's like, hmm. Yeah, I'm just staring at the camera, spaced out. And uh, they're like, well, you know, here's two better times and cheers. And um, they all have a sip of the cocktail. She downs the cocktail in one, puts it down, and she goes, wow, this gin is really smooth. <laughs> yeah, really smooth. And it was just so well yeah. done, perfectly played. I loved it. Really, yeah, the turnaround on that was mad. Great stuff. So fast. There, yeah, must, yeah. there must be instances where you feel, because we all say it, we say, how did that get approved? How did that yeah. campaign get, get yeah. approved? Do you ever feel like as a PR, as a, you know, as an agency's PR company, you're kind of uh, rectifying? bad mistakes a lot of the time do you ever see things that land yeah. on your desk and think you know from a PR point of view this is you know this is never going to take off so historically yeah I would say probably in the current agency I mean not so much but yeah absolutely but you know there's other parts of the job there are times for example the service disruption and you have to manage that and the reputation takes a real tumble mm -hmm. you know I think there's a whole other side of PR which is more about reputation management and quite a lot of that is about keeping stuff out of the papers yeah. Yeah. rather than getting it into the papers yeah, and there's a lot of bargaining done with journalists there yeah. to to do that and it's it's a different type of PR but yeah, yeah absolutely there are times when we've had to do that and quite often these are times where you just have to it's all about damage limitation because it's going to come out yeah. there's so much transparency you can't Find hide the things angle and just exactly and, and own it like Starbucks did yeah. as well you know? no, what, what about what about ad blocking as well do you do you fear for the future of PR in a, in a world that is increasingly blocking ads and, and whatnot? I, I think that's a massive opportunity for PR and I think it's a you know it's an issue for the advertisers when you think about so there's there was some research that was done fairly recently that shows that the average number of adverts a person sees in one day is between 4,000 and 10,000 adverts. Mm. You can't even fathom that, can you? Well, yeah, I know. It's bonkers. <laughs> and But how do you create cut-through for all of that? Yeah. It's, it's really, really difficult. You, you need you need to you need to come up with something disruptive. Yeah. Is that why you guys turn to things like stunts? Because I see, I see stunts more and more and it tends to be less of a like product straight push and less of an advert and more of like a thing a that just thing. happens to have the brand attached to it. You, kind of. I'll tell you what is interesting is that um, advertising agencies are recognising the power of that, actually. Yeah. And a lot of them are changing their model so that the, the best ideas are the ones that live uh, off screen or off billboards, for example, and yeah. that's where the conversation happens. So if you look at the winners of the Cannes Lions, for example, over the last few years, they're all co campaigns, like Fearless Girl, for example, they're all campaigns that create conversations outside of traditional advertising. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen that um, Chris Rock sketch about gun control. Where he basically says, you know, 
guns aren't the problem. They're not the things that kill people. What we need is bullet control. Yeah. Can you imagine if every single bullet costs $5,000? People would think twice about pulling a trigger mm. then. I kind of feel the same way about advertising because advertising seems to have just got quite cheap nowadays. And actually, you know, the space that you're buying, whether it be airtime or the pixels, you're actually buying a bit of someone's experience. You're actually buying a bit of someone's life. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're doing that, you've actually got a duty to put something that's quite meaningful into that space. And if mm -hmm. you're not doing that, then you're failing your audience. Yeah. So I think the opportunity there is to think about, you know, for advertising and for PR is how do we create something of, of more value because the stats are scary there's there was a, a study that was done from the university of warwick that was reported on in the harvard business review in january that found a direct correlation between the amount of advertising spend in the country and unhappiness yeah so something's got to change yeah something's got to change where we are trying to do things that serve more people mm. yeah. that appeal to a higher need rather than just a base need definitely stop firing blanks and have more of an impact i love that gun yeah, metaphor man. i'm yeah. going to I'm going to steal that. You're going to see it on right. social chain channels tomorrow. <laughs> I, I have got one uh, burning question, actually, which is sort of very timely, I, I suppose. I imagine that, you know, we've all heard of slow news days, but, mm. you know, right now we're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic, obviously. Yeah. When you get times like this, is it, does it make cutting through with anything absolutely impossible? Are editors even caring about, you know, a brand campaign doing a social stunt or whatever? So, yes, it does make it really, really hard. But no, it's not impossible. So an example of this today, it is coronavirus day. You know, we've moved to a new phase in terms of delay. And that's what all that anyone's talking about. But actually... There's a load of stuff that other people are talking about as well. And the news agenda needs to be balanced with yeah. light news. So today is also World Sleep Day. Love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's the problems. Exactly. Well, and one of our clients at Fan Club is um, Emma Mattresses. So the team back and props to the team, you know, they, they we have an expert um, called Dr. Verena Sen, who's a sleep expert. Um, they've been pitching her for features and they had a great big feature in the Metro today oh, talking about what you can do for World Sleep Day. And so if you have a handle on what are the light stories that are going to come up and where can we create a bit of balance in the news agenda, you can still create yeah, cut through. But it is, it is honestly a lot of our, it's a harder job. Yeah, now, There is a demand there, like we were saying earlier, you need that comic relief and yep. people will be will be looking for something lighter to read yeah. um, I do have one further question just for the sceptics who might be listening yeah. uh, because we get it as well working in social PR is an awareness based business mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people think that was social as well it has all been quite top level yeah. especially in its early days but sure. how can it increase sales like is PR so I think it's, it's an interesting question. I think the whole thing comes back to this model, which we all work to in social or marketing in general, which was created by Kellogg Strong, which is the awareness, consideration, conversion funnel, mm. right? And I think you're right. Traditionally, PR has sat in the awareness level. But I think that the advent of digital has meant that PR can add a lot more value to the whole part of the channel. PR can create awareness. It can also drive consideration by talking about product benefits or uh, service benefits and create conversion by putting a call to action in there as well. But it can also impact things in a different way. So, for example, if you get 
media coverage in the Daily Mail is more likely to help with organic search visibility. Yeah. So an example of this would be some of our work with Travel Supermarket, for example. So Travel Supermarket, the search ranking for the term city breaks in the January a few years ago was ranking an 11th. And there's an old joke in search, where do you hide a body? Uh, <laughs> second page of Google. Second page of exactly. And so you know, they wanted to see what they could do to boost uh, organic visibility for that term city breaks. So we came up with a campaign idea for them and we saw that uh, actually one of the biggest trends in city breaks is hipster travel, going to like the cool bits of all the cities. Mm. And so what we did is we worked with a couple of bloggers, travel bloggers and travel influencers to create a hip city index where we ranked the most hip cities in the UK and in Europe by how hip they were. And we created a little travel guide for them and had it as a microsite on the Travel oh, Supermarket website. Yeah, I would totally use that. Yeah, well, yeah, and then and then we contacted all of these cities and uh, the travel uh, tourism boards and said, you know, you guys have ranked second or fourth in this. We're going out of this story next week. Will you share it on your social media channels? Some of them came back to us and said, we're going to do better than that. We're going to pitch it to our TV and news and, and radio as well because we're so proud of what we achieved. Lovely. We went out of a story. We pitched it to all the press. It was shared across social. And as a result of that, the search ranking for City Breaks went from 11th to 4th place. And the revenue that was created from the jump in search visibility to their um, more than paid for mm-hmm. the cost of that campaign. Yeah. So you can see that's where the ROI would come in. Yeah, there. no, definitely. Like awareness can definitely bring sales. It's just it's never awareness for awareness sake, is it? You have to do something with it. But that's that's a great example. Exactly. And and you're right. You really need to think about what's the user journey and how does it create value back for the mm-hmm. brand? Because there's no point just saying right, fame for fame's sake. Yeah, no, definitely. Is it harder on social though, Adrian? Because again, you know, used to work in SEO and and uh, there was a real relationship between you know SEO people and kind of PRs. Is it harder on social? It is. It is, to be honest. I think it's it's getting harder on social as well because tracking is more difficult. And I think one way of tracking is to try and use affiliate links with mm. social, mm-hmm. for example. But, you know, people won't, don't want to be told what links to use. Mm. Yeah. And so it, it is it is difficult. I think measurement is something that's always going to be a bit of a struggle um, and attribution particularly so. But there are tools that are being worked on at the moment. Um, which are being beta tested by some of our software partners. I can't, I'm probably not at liberty to talk about, which is going to help create a bit more visibility in all of that. And I hope that over the next year or so, these will be live and there'll be some decent industry benchmarks which will be available to everyone to help with measurement there. Yeah, I know. I mean, I was curious, like, are you at the mercy of algorithms as much as social is sometimes? Because I feel like with social, there's something we're definitely trying to discourage now more than ever, but there's this always on culture. So brands mm. feel like even when they don't have something big to talk about, they should be talking. Yeah. And I guess PR doesn't yeah. have that to worry about because every story you do has to have that impact. You know, it has to be hitting those benchmarks, otherwise it won't get picked up anywhere. So with that in mind do algorithms like uh, get in the way of your work or are you kind of always guaranteed to get above that line no no never guaranteed to get above that line <clears throat> and actually one of the things that is a massive shift for us is is the role of algorithms in content discovery i don't think that everyone in pr has quite got there yet yeah. in understanding the amount of influence an algorithm has yeah. in how a story uh, is successful or not yeah but i think we're getting there i wouldn't say that algorithms are necessarily Getting in the way, I think it um, differs on channel, obviously. Facebook versus LinkedIn is a great example. Mm -hmm. But I think that if it's a great story that's likely to get shared, it'll get shared. 
Yeah. And it doesn't really matter where it is. And I think if you're starting to think quite multi-channel about it, it might be more successful in some channels than others. Yeah, definitely. I think that's true. Cream rises to the top. It's Theo's favourite yes, phrase. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've, we've, well, we've covered a lot there. We so yeah, we'll, we'll wrap up there, Adrian. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank and you. Very, very interesting nuggets in there. You're welcome. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to leave us a review on iTunes because it really, really helps and allows us to bring you brand new episodes every single week. This has been the Social Minds Podcast with myself, Theo Watts, Eve Young, and produced by Ollie Thompson. 